Today, as in the ancient era, the church is confronted by a host of life stories that contradict and compete with the gospel. The book of Colossians demonstrates the supremacy of Christ in all of life and reminds us that he has secured redemption for creation of which his people are a part. You're listening to a sermon series on the book of Colossians by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. This is our last Sunday, looking at the concept of normal Christian mission from Colossians 4, 2 through 6. When we finish today, we only have two more weeks left in Colossians, and then we will be done. I sincerely hope that you have been challenged by God to see yourself as someone living life on a mission as we've been working through these verses here. Let's look at Colossians 4, 2 through 6, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Dear Lord, we have been greatly convicted by your word over these past three weeks as we have stopped to contemplate what it means to be on a mission from you. The fact that you have a plan for the world. That that plan is to redeem a people for yourself who are zealous for good works. That they have been redeemed from all lawlessness through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is your plan. It has always been your plan since before the world was made That was what you were intending to do. And not only do you have a plan for the world, you have a plan for each and every one of us and how we fit into your plan. You have put us here as the body of Christ. He has ascended to heaven, but we are here now as his representatives on earth, seeking to reconcile men to you, seeking to present everyone perfect in Jesus Christ like him. And so this mission has been too much for us as we've seen already. It's something that should drive us to our knees in prayer. It's something that we can't do alone. We have to to work together with each other. We have to partner even with you in, in understanding that we are the means through which you're doing this. Lord, we understand from what we saw last week that our practical everyday purpose as we try to carry out this mission is simply to declare the mystery of Christ clearly. And in all these things, Lord, we have been thoroughly convicted by our selfishness, by our fear, our lack of desire to live our lives for you. We are a people, Lord, even though we've been saved from the wrath to come, we are a people who are still very much in love with this world. And so, Lord, this morning as we come one last time into these verses, I pray that you will convict our hearts again, that you will show us now how to live this way, that you will show us how it is that we carry out this mission each and every day. Encourage our hearts with this, Lord, so that we can go out from here and effectively in every arena of life 
live as ministers of Jesus Christ. That is what we want to be. That is who you have made us. And so this morning, we need your spirit to come and do that work in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you will take my very feeble words and where they are faithful to your word, I pray that you will lodge them deep in, their, in, in these people's hearts. And Lord, where, where I am not faithful to your word, I pray that they will forget everything I say. Ultimately, you are the one who must be glorified. And so this morning we come asking you to glorify yourself in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in the summer of 1999, I had the opportunity to take an evangelism training class called uh, Evangelism Explosion, or more normally known as EE. How many of you are familiar with EE, or you've ever heard of it or taken the class? Okay, a few of you. It was the first time that I had ever taken a class on how to share the gospel with people. It's a lot of techniques and understanding maybe what you say or questions you you answer. And as part of the class, we had to listen to this recorded demonstration of the techniques that we were listening to. Now, have you ever heard someone who's trying to mimic really bad acting where they they are like overemphasizing the words they say, like as if they're reading from a script, sort of like, hi, I'm Stacy, I like chicken, that kind of a, a speech pattern. That's not too far off of how this recording actually went. All the people in the recording were actors. It wasn't real. These were just people from that particular ministry putting this on. And one line that has stuck in my mind ever since I heard that recording was this line from the person who was the main main guy in the recording. My, what a lovely picture on your wall. Where did you get that? Now, I don't know about you. But if anyone ever came and said anything like that to me, I would pretty much shut them down right away because it's cheesy, it's patronizing, it sounds cliched, it sounds, I don't know, it just sounds very childish. And I don't like that kind of approach in any area of life. You ask Jamie if we're out shopping somewhere and a salesman comes up and he starts into his sales pitch and it's very canned and you can tell, tell it, I'm pretty much done right there. Nine times out of ten, I'm not going to buy anything from that person. In fact, I'll try my best to get away from them as quickly as possible. Well, if I don't want to buy a couch from someone who sounds like that, I definitely do not want to take eternal truth from someone who sounds like that either. And that right there would reflect one of my two biggest problems with evangelistic training classes. I've had this pretty much since I took that first class in 99. Very often, they lead people to think of and present the gospel as just a canned sales pitch full of cliches and gimmicks. Okay, That's how it seems to come across or how it's taught very often. And as I said, I don't care for that. I don't want people to sell God's truth. It should be real. It should be genuine. And if you have to sell it, well, then something's wrong with how you understand it. That's one of my problems. My other big concern is that very often these kinds of classes tend to reinforce a wrong view of evangelism in general. They tend to put evangelism out there as an event rather than as a way of life. I don't know how kind of churches you were from, but the churches I grew up in would have something called calling. Okay, maybe it was Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night was calling night. And they were using the word calling in the old sense of going to visit someone in person. If you've ever uh, watched an old movie where the guy who likes the girl, he says, may I call on you next week? 
He's not talking about the telephone. He's talking about, may I come visit you? They were using the word in the same sense. And on that given night from 7 to 9 or 6 to 8 or whatever it was, people gathered at the church and then they went out. And oftentimes they just knocked on doors and just tried to talk to people about Jesus. Hi, do you know Jesus? Hi, do you know Jesus? Hi, do you know Jesus? That kind of an approach, which is okay, I guess. Uh, You probably have people come to your door like that. But the main problem there was very often these people, once they completed their little segment of time that was on their calendar, they were done with evangelism for the rest of the week. That was their time. They viewed it as an event only. And so once they had checked that off of their calendar, they could just kind of live their lives for themselves the rest of the time. Now, I understand that with both of these problems or concerns that I have, not everyone struggled with those things. There are evangelistic training classes out there that teach you how to share the gospel in just a natural way. It's not trying to give you a canned sales pitch. It's just trying to help you learn, and that's great. I also know that people who went out on those calling nights, there were some who would share the gospel any time of the day, any time of the week, faithfully. This is not true of everyone. I'm painting with a very large brush here. But I think that the heart of my critique is sound. And so, as we enter these final two verses of this section on understanding normal Christian mission, I want to know if the Bible speaks at all in any way about the manner in which I carry out the mission. I want to know if it addresses how I should do it, when I should do it, what kind of mindset should I have towards it, those sorts of things. Well, of course, the answer is yes. Here in verses 5 and 6, Paul addresses two very practical issues relating to the process of the mission. He addresses who we're aiming at and how we live our lives around these people. And so my hope is is that Paul's answer to these two questions will set all of us on a wise and biblical trajectory as we seek to carry out the mission that Christ has set us on. And so let's begin with the question, who are we aiming at in the mission. Notice the group of people that Paul mentions here in verse 5. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Now, this is Paul's term for people who have not placed their faith in the mystery of Christ, people who have not been made one with the body of Christ on earth, the church. That means that in Paul's mind, you can separate everyone you see into one of two groups, those who belong to Christ and those who don't. Those who are on the inside, in the church, one with with Jesus Christ, one with the body of Christ, and those who are not. Paul has a very high view of church, and I think that just based on this term that he's chosen here, outsiders, that Paul could never envision a true Christian who was not a part of the church. Now, we see that quite a bit in our world. People who are believers who have been, for whatever reason, hurt by churches that they've been in or whatever situation may have come up, and they just really don't want anything to do with it. I'm not downplaying their hurts. I'm just simply pointing out that in Paul's mindset, that kind of a concept is foreign to him. He would expect all true believers to be a part of it, those who are not believers to be outside of it. In Paul's mind, he sees the church as a distinguishing marker between those who believe and those who don't. And so here, as in other passages in the New Testament, the term outsider refers to someone who is not a Christian. Now, in saying that our mission should be aimed at people who are outside, people who are non-believers... I recognize that almost every single one of you in here, 
all those of you who are a part of our church, you understand that that's what we should be focusing on. And yet, let me ask you a question. Where do you spend the majority of your time and thoughts when it comes to ministering? Is it to people who are outside the church or people who are inside? Where do you get the most ruffled when you don't see something happening? Where do you see the greatest needs are this for those who are outside the church or those who are inside the church? I think that for most of us believers in this room, we think more about the insiders than we ever do about the outsiders. And that's fine to a point because remember, our big picture mission is to make all people perfect in Jesus Christ. And all people does include the insiders. We do need to be thinking about them. We need to think about how to minister to believers so that they look more like Jesus Christ. That is good, right, and biblical. But if that is as far as our thoughts ever go, then we are only accomplishing half of the mission. We as individual believers and as a church need to give serious thought to how we reach those who are outside of the church with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a part of the mission that we cannot ignore. In effect, what we need to do is we need to view ourselves as a church and as individuals as biblically balanced missionaries. We should be a biblically balanced missionary church. We should be biblically balanced missionaries on a mission for Jesus Christ. That we focus on those who are outside, those who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior. We declare clearly the mystery of Christ to them so that they can be saved. And then once they're on the inside, we continue working with them, helping them become more and more like Jesus Christ. That gives us a balanced focus on both evangelism and discipleship. So who are we aiming at? Well, obviously believers, but please, 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 Paul wants you to remember and he wants you to really focus on the fact that the mission is also on those who are outside. That's an easy answer to the question. We need to be reaching these people with the gospel. The harder piece of that is the how. That's the second one. I mean, how do you go about doing that practically? What should you Should you learn the the canned gimmicky approach so that every time you talk to someone you can pull it out of your back pocket and and throw it at them? Do do you try to to do this, do that? I mean, what what do you do? How do you do it? Does does Paul mention that at all? Well, yes. As you look at verses 5 and 6, it's clear to me that Paul didn't view our mission toward outsiders in terms of presentation or program. He's not saying, look, Colossians, why don't you set up Thursday evenings from 5 to 9, this is your time. Listen, Colossians, you need to learn these seven points right here. Walk people through them. This is what's going to happen. He doesn't do that at all. The instructions he gives in these two verses showed, showed me that Paul intended for us to carry out this mission as we live our everyday lives alongside of non-believers. And so how do we do that? How do we do that practically? I see five things here in verses 5 and 6 Five principles that teach us practically how to live our lives around those who do not believe. Principle number one is this. We must approach all of life wisely. We must approach all of life wisely. The opening comment of verse 5 is a command to walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. 
Now, of the five principles that we're going to look at this morning, this one right here is the most far-reaching, high-level command of the group. The word walk simply means to live life, to live your normal, everyday life. It has to do with just the regular patterns of life, so that when Paul says in Galatians to walk in the Spirit, he simply means to live your normal, everyday life in control, under the control of and submission to the Holy Spirit. Okay? In everything you do throughout the whole day, you should be walking in the Spirit. It should just be the normal way you live. When Paul, earlier in Colossians, told us to walk in the Lord Jesus Christ, he was telling us to live our normal, everyday lives in a way that shows that Jesus Christ really is the Lord of our lives. That's not just a little slogan we pull out when it's convenient. He wants it to be real. And here, when he tells us to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, he means that we should live our normal, everyday lives with wisdom because we're living it in the view of those who do not believe. That means that when we go to work, we're not just at work doing our own thing. We are representing Christ to a group of people, many of whom may not believe in him. You are his ambassador in that environment. You need to be walking in wisdom. That means when you're at the store shopping for the things you need, understand you are representing Christ to the people around you. They may not always know that you're a believer, but there should be nothing inconsistent about the way you shop, the things you buy, whatever, that would in any way put a bad light on Jesus Christ. We need to walk in wisdom. When we are with our family or friends, we are representing Christ to those who do not believe. In all of these situations, we need to understand that we are living with a missionary mindset and we need wisdom to do that. That's why I said that this right here is the most far-reaching, high-level command of the group because it covers every single aspect of everything you do in your day. No wonder he says we're going to need wisdom. Because how do you prepare for everything that's going to happen in the day? How do you think through in advance all of the things that are going to come about? Well, when I'm in this situation and this person's there and they bring up this topic, I'll say this. When I get to this place and this happens and this comes up, I'll say that you couldn't possibly do that. No one approach will give you a a, a feeling of comfort or security to be able to clearly declare the mystery of Christ in all of the unique contexts and situations that you find yourself in on a daily basis. And so the best you can do is to use wisdom in those situations. In a sense, those first five words of verse 5 give you the most succinct instructions on living evangelistically that you will find in the Scriptures. You want to know how to do it on a practical basis? Simple. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. It's kind of like Augustine's quote, which I love. He was talking about how do you live the normal Christian life? I've taken weeks and weeks and weeks to explain that. Augustine did it in just a few words. He said, love God and do as you please. That's it. Because if you really think about all the questions you have, can I do this? Should I do that? How, what, what does God say about this? Is this right? What's his will? You take all those questions. If you simply loved God the way you should, with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, you did it biblically and consistently, do whatever you want. Because you will always do it to the glory of God. It's a very succinct quote on the normal Christian life. And in a similar way, Paul says here that as you're attempting to reach non-believers with the gospel, 
If you simply live the totality of your life in a wise manner, you will do it. You will handle each and every situation correctly. Ed Welch says that wisdom is living a biblically informed life. And I'll come back to that later. Wisdom is living a biblically informed life. And he's right. If you allow the scriptures to fill your mind and heart and direct you in everything you do throughout the day in each situation, then you can be certain that as you interact with non-believers, you will be able to do so in a way that makes the gospel look glorious to them. And that's important because they're watching you. What this first principle does for us is it demolishes the concept of evangelism as an event. It's not an event. It's something you need to walk in. Every day, in every situation of life, your normal understanding and outlook on life should be that you are doing it in wisdom towards unbelievers, which leads us then to principle number two. We must take advantage of each opportunity. Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. That last phrase there in verse 5, it literally means to buy back time. It pictures time as an object that has been lost or stolen. One that you have to go out and, and, and you have to get back. You have to redeem it. In fact, some of you with older translations, yours might say redeeming the time. That word brings to mind someone who's being held hostage. As you pay a ransom to get it back, well, time's not being held hostage. All Paul is trying to get across to us is that time is valuable and we need to use it wisely. We need to buy it back, make the best use of it possible. And if we connect that understanding back into what Paul just told us to do, we begin to see his larger point. All of life needs to be lived with the outsider in view, right? Okay, evangelism is not an event. It should be a way of life. And when we begin seeing it as a way of life, when we begin seeing it in every single activity that we do, then all of those everyday activities that we just sort of ignored before take on a great deal more significance than we had ever given them in the past. Now that business trip with the, the guy from work, it becomes an opportunity to share Christ with him. You need to make the best use of the time. Now that watch you've got with the guy from the engine room, it's not just something you have to fulfill a duty. It's now an opportunity for you to share Christ with that person. You need to make the best use of the time. Seeing evangelism as a way of life rather than an event forces us to begin considering the gospel implications of each and every circumstance of life. How can we use whatever happens to us in any given situation for the advancement of the gospel? See, that's the question that you begin thinking about. I'm convinced that that's why Paul, here in this passage, didn't ask the Colossians to pray for his release. Now, he does ask that in other uh, letters and in other writings, but not here. He says, look, I want you to pray that God will open to me a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Paul understands that his mission isn't limited because he's in prison. It just is different. His circumstance changed, but he's still going to use that circumstance if Paul is being treated the way we think he probably was, given why he was in prison. Remember, he's not a murderer. He didn't steal anything. He's more just of a, he's a nuisance, really. That's all that was going on. He's probably under house arrest. He's not in a real jail. And he's probably chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. So, so what do you think Paul's doing for that time? 
Do you think he's sitting there, God, please let me out so I can get back to work ministering to people and sharing the gospel? No. He literally has a captive audience, okay? That joke has been made so many times it's hardly funny anymore, but he is making the best use of his time because he understands that every circumstance and every opportunity of life provides us with an opportunity to share Christ with those who don't believe, so don't waste that time. Principle number three, we must be able to speak in a way that makes others want to listen. We must be able to speak in a way that makes others want to listen. In verse 6, Paul says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. The, the word for speech here in verse 6, is the, it's just the general term for words, okay? Just words. Normally, when you see this word in the original languages, you, you try to look for some clue in the text to tell you what it's talking about. So, for example, if you look back at verse 3, he used this same term when he said, he asked them to pray that God would open to them a door for the word. All right, well, which word is it that you want a door open for? Well, he wants it for the word that is the mystery of Christ. So clearly in verse 3, the word is the gospel. He, he explains that. He gives you a clue to help you understand. Well, if you come back to verse 6, notice that he doesn't give any extra clues. That means that he's just using this word in its most generic, basic sense possible. He's just talking about any kind of speech. Any kind of words that you speak. And in describing for them what their communication should look like, he addresses both the manner and the approach in which they talk. In regards to the manner, he says that all of their words should be gracious. They should be filled with grace. And the easiest way, I think, to understand what gracious words look like is to hear what ungracious words look like. See, ungracious words or graceless words are words that show no or little kindness. Graceless words are rude. Graceless words are hurtful. Graceless words give no thought to the listener or how your words impact them. And in contrast to all of that, Paul says, don't be graceless with your words. Your words should be gracious. They should be characterized by grace, particularly with outsiders. That's the manner. In regards to the approach... He adds this little phrase in verse 6. He says, not only should it be gracious, they should be seasoned with salt. Well, what does that mean to say that your words should be seasoned with salt? Well, it could mean one of two things. In the Greek-Roman mind of Paul's day, if your words were salty, it didn't mean that you were using dirty words or vulgar words. That's how we tend to think of it. It meant that your words were interesting. Because salt enhances the flavor of food, right? You can eat french fries without salt, and they're okay. But if you put salt on them, it tastes way better. There's nothing better than a hot plate of french fries covered in salt with a big pile of ketchup. You're hungry now, aren't you? That's good. Because we like the flavor of salt. And so for the Roman and the Greek mind, as they thought about someone's speech, someone's words, if it was seasoned with salt... Well, that's a good speaker. That's an interesting person to listen to. This is someone I want to hear more of. The other possibility is the Jewish understanding. In the Jewish world, if your speech was seasoned with salt, it meant that it was wise. Because remember, the other use of salt is not just to flavor, it's also to preserve. And so the concept for the Jewish mind was if someone's words were salty, these were words that were wise, that, that should be listened to. They're worthy to be heard. So, okay, which of these two is Paul using here? Well, he is Jewish after all, so he's probably that one, right? But he's also writing to Roman Greek 
people in, in the church of Colossae, so maybe it's that one. In the end, it doesn't really matter. You know why? Because both have the same end result. And in either case, the words you speak, if they're seasoned with salt, they make people want to listen to you. You're speaking things that are worthy to be heard. And Paul urges the Colossians here to speak in this gracious manner with the goal of winning over listeners. Now, please understand Paul's point here. He's not simply referring to how we talk when we're sharing the gospel. I think that a lot of times when we, we talk about evangelism, all we can think about is the actual moment you're declaring the truth of, of the gospel. He's using this word generally. He's saying in every aspect of your communication, with everyone you talk to throughout the day, your words should show kindness and exude competence in each and every area of life. You should have a reputation for being the kind of person that people want to listen to. It's fine to be silly at work. I understand that. You've got to have fun sometimes. But if all you're known as is a goofball, you're not going to be a very effective witness for Jesus Christ. If all you do is spew out silliness and worthless talk all the time, no one is going to want to hear what you have to say when you finally get to something important. Paul is urging us here to be cognizant of the fact that everything we say in every situation has effects on those we listen to. When we speak, he says, others should want to listen to us. Principle number four, we must be able to explain our faith. And this obviously flows out of the last one. But notice that Paul says in verse 6 that the reason our speech should be characterized by kindness and competence is so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You see, ultimately, this is the place we're aiming at, isn't it? This is, this is where we're trying to get. You want to have an opportunity to give an answer to people, to these outsiders, for the faith that you have and for the life that you live. Now, I told you last week that verbalizing the gospel to people it makes up about 90% of the task of evangelism. You remember I said that? It, that is where we should focus the majority of our thoughts and minds is on declaring clearly the mystery of Christ. But I also said that your life does matter, and these two verses prove that. We need to be actively declaring the mystery of Christ in every situation, and yet our lives must back up what we do. We should be living lives that make people want to wonder What's different about them? Why is he so kind to everyone? Why is she so content and happy with so little? Why are they joyful? How come they have so much insight into people, into situations and things that happen around them? See, if we're living lives that we're supposed to be living in the normal Christian life, everything we've seen since chapter 3, verse 1, if we're consistently doing these things, then we will be different and it will stir up questions in people's minds about why we are so strange, why we are so different from the others around us and we need to be able to give an answer to these questions. Look, you don't have to know everything there is to know about the Bible and theology to do that. If you can simply help people understand why your faith is in Jesus Christ, that's really all you need. Will more information help? Sure. Could you do that better as you learn more? Yes, you can. But ultimately, we do not believe fairy tales and myths. We believe truth. And the fact that God has declared the gospel to us in a message 
in propositional truths shows that we can speak, we need to speak to people's minds, to their intellects, and give them good answers for the faith that we have. All these people around us should see us, should know that we're different, and our lives should back up the message that we're declaring to them. We need to be able to give those answers. Principle number five, we must tailor our approach to each unique individual. We must tailor our approach to each unique individual. Notice the last two words of verse 6. Paul wants us to give an answer to each person. Now, he's very specific in the way he words this. It's to every one. Not, not everyone, to every one. So this one and that one and that one and that one and that one. Each and every one, each and every individual is who we should be answering. Paul recognizes the uniqueness of how God uses us in the gospel process. People are different, right? We all know that. And yet, as a church, and I don't mean just us here at Cornerstone, I'm referring to the whole American church. As a church, we have bought into the idea that Henry Ford is a better model of ministry than the Apostle Paul was. You see, Ford revolutionized manufacturing with his assembly line. So instead of having one person try to build the whole car, he just taught a person a job. Okay, you're going to put in seats. You put a seat in now, next car comes, you put a seat in again, you do it again, you do it again, you do it so much, you become very good at it, and at the end, on the other end of the assembly line when it comes out, you've got products that are identical. They're high quality. You can be certain that everything went just like it was supposed to go. The product is predictable. It's a wonderful truth for manufacturing, and so the church latches onto that. Well, we need to put everyone through this program. And once we teach them all these things, and we give them all these answers, and we, we've explained all these little stories that they can tell, at the end of the line, we should get the same product each and every time, except what goes wrong. You, you put that into practice, and people go out, and they begin doing this, and the products aren't the same. In fact, a lot of times it doesn't work and people become discouraged. And next thing you know, they stop even attempting to share the gospel. And so many churches, many Christians have unknowingly adopted that kind of a mindset when it comes to evangelism. But part of what that model fails to recognize is that people are different. We're different, okay? Some of you in this room, you might be very, very good at explaining the truths of the gospel to people. You might be very good at making those truths clear, answering their questions, but you've got no interpersonal skills, or very few, okay? You can't make a friend with a log, much less a person, all right? Others of you, very, very good interpersonal skills. You're just natural lovers. You just love everybody. I love you. I love you. You've got friends galore. You can't tell anything hardly. You can't speak truth. That model doesn't represent the fact that each and every one of us are different, and not only are we different as evangelists, but the people we're trying to reach are all different just like us. And because of all these differences, that assembly line approach to evangelism, it just doesn't work well. In place of Ford's assembly line, Paul suggests a more practical approach. He says, tailor your answer to each person. That's simple. Very straightforward. You proclaim it to each one. This requires us to be sensitive and aware to each person's disposition and situation. And I'm going to tell you a story right now of where I failed in this. And I'm going to lose respect in your eyes, but it's a good example. Right after I got saved, this, I didn't do what Paul says to do. Right after I got saved, I was very zealous to, to share Christ with a, a particular family. 
that I had known for a number of years, the girl uh, who was my friend, we were in high school together, she was the only believer in her family. That's it. So we had been praying for her mom and dad, her sister, and at some point in that process, her mother came down with breast cancer. And so we've been praying about that as well. But I became very zealous and wanted to, to share Christ with her mother, and so I wrote a letter. And this is, in effect, what I said in the letter. I'm not going to pray for your breast cancer anymore because it's not the most important problem you have. The most important problem you have is that you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to go to hell. Please accept him today. Now, I didn't say it that way, but that's, in effect, what I said to her. I didn't get a response. When I went home at Christmas break, or whatever break it was, I went to their house. It was just her mom and dad at home. I knocked on the door. They let me in, surprisingly. I go in, and I sit down, and I said to them, did you get my letter? Yes, I did. What did you think of my letter? And they proceeded to tell me what they thought of my letter. Was everything I said to them true? Yes, it was. Cancer was not her most important problem. The worst cancer could do is kill the body. That's it. The most it can do is, is rob you of your life. It cannot affect your soul. Was the truth of the gospel that I proclaimed to them true? Oh, yes, I, I gave a, a, a faithful gospel a message to them in my letter. But I didn't do anything of what Paul describes here. I was insensitive, I was hurtful, and in the end I did more damage to the gospel and the cause of Christ. And that bothered me and bothers me to this day greatly. See, we need to be sensitive to where people are. We need to tailor our, our conversations to each person. We need to be loving in all of these situations. It requires us to wisely take different approaches with different people. Some people you can be very strong with, very straightforward. And other people you need to be very tender with. You need to be very caring of. The message is the same each time, but we frame the message in a way that suits the person we're talking to in the situation that we're in. Now... How do you do these five things practically? Let me just give you one suggestion for each one, just so you have a thought to motivate you on each point. When I say that we must approach all of life wisely, you need to remember that the only true source of wisdom is Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. Remember again that quote from Ed Welch, that wisdom is living a biblically informed life. That, that's all it is. If you lived every day thinking through, what does, what does God's word say about this? But what, what truths or principles apply here? You would live very wisely in this world. You know what that requires? It requires you spend time in the word. And that's not a cliche answer. I've made jokes before that I hate telling people, as your application for today, you need to read your Bible. All right, that, that seems like Sunday schoolish. But it's true. If you're not in the word, you're never going to know God. You're never going to understand life. You're never going to know how to begin living wisely and biblically in each and every situation. Yes, experience does give us wisdom. As we go through things, we learn. I learned a great lesson from that story I just told you. But ultimately, wisdom is not our true teacher. The scriptures are, and so we have to spend time in the word. Number two, when I say that we must take advantage of each opportunity... That should cause our minds to begin strategizing about ways to live our lives with unbelievers. This all it is. It should just cause us to start thinking about it. You don't need to set up some big program or event to share Christ with people. Why don't you just invite your neighbors over for dinner? 
It's just that simple. And I'm not saying this so you can like jump them with the gospel gun as soon as they walk in. Jesus loves you. You know, this is not the approach you're taking with folks as they're coming over. How many of you have, have, have seen that little uh, joke article about the Jack Bauer School of Pragmatic Evangelism? You know, Jack Bauer from 24. If you haven't seen that, go home today and Google it. That is not what we're suggesting here, okay? You need to learn to balance tact with boldness. There, there is a time and place for tact. There is a time and place for boldness, and wisdom will help you know which is needed when. My point here is simply this. If we're going to make the best use of our time, we should be strategizing about how to create more opportunities to talk with those around us who don't believe. Now, now listen very carefully to what I'm about to say, because I need to clarify something here. There is a difference between strategizing and manipulating. You catch that? There's a difference between strategizing and manipulating. The difference is motivation. I'm not telling you to be kind to your neighbors just so you can preach, to God, preach Christ to them. That, that's not it. You should be kind to your neighbors no matter what. Because what happens if you, you declare the gospel and they're like, forget you, or are you like off the hook now? I don't have to be kind to them anymore because they don't want to hear. No, that's not the point at all. You, you don't need to just get to know people so you can, you can declare the gospel. You should love people regardless. We don't use people. We use opportunities. You, you get the difference there? You don't use the people. You use the opportunity. I'm not suggesting that you manipulate anyone. I'm just encouraging you to be strategic and purposeful in all of your dealings with non-believers because the truth of the matter is, is they will know whether or not you're being genuine. And nothing will drive people away faster from the gospel than someone who is clearly attempting to use them and manipulate them for their own purposes. That is not the kind of, of mission we're on, so use the opportunity, not the people. Number three, when I said we must be able to speak in a way that makes others want to listen, that should motivate you to become students of the world we live in so that you can meet people where they are. Too often, Christians come across as uninformed and uninterested about what is going on in the world. The, the old way of saying that is that people were so heavenly-minded they were no what? No earthly good, okay? Because they didn't care about what was going on around them. They were only focused upward. If you've been in church any length of time, you've probably met Christians who were kooky. And I'm taking this from Mark Driscoll. He says there's some kooky Christians in the world. He says, I call them Christians because they're Christians. I call them kooky because they're kooky. And the reason that they're kooky is because they're trying to, to wrestle with a question that each and every one of us has to wrestle with. Jesus said we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. Okay? We're supposed to live with unbelievers and yet be different than them. Well, how different should I be? See, that, that's the question right there that gets us all in trouble. For some people, they look at that question and they answer and like, oh, we need to be really different. And so they go way over here and they end up just looking kooky, weird, strange in the way that other people, they look at it and say, I shouldn't be different at all. And they go in the far other extreme. We have to find some kind of balance point, some kind of way of being able to be in the world but not of the world. And I think that in order to speak in a way that makes outsiders want to listen, we have to be students of the world so that we can address the gospel to them where they are right now. Jesus and the Apostle Paul are great examples of this. Jesus provides us with an excellent example of someone who could take current events or cultural practices and use them to proclaim the gospel. Parables effectively work that way. 
The Apostle Paul could quote Greek philosophers and poets as he addressed the the men on Mars Hill or the people who lived on the island of Crete. He knew what they were reading, he knew what they were familiar with, and he could take it and use it for the gospel. And I say that you and I should do the same. We don't need to disengage from public discourse, disengage from the world. We need to re-engage so that we can bring the gospel to bear on people where they are in a gracious way that makes them want to listen to us. Number four, when I say that we must be able to explain our faith, that means that no dumb Christians are allowed. None. I am so sick, and I haven't heard it in a long time, but I've heard it enough in my life that I'm still just sickened by it. I'm sick of hearing people act like truth doesn't matter. It matters greatly, and you need to know it. Again, you don't have to be able to answer every single question about the Bible or doctrine, but look, if you don't know the story of the Bible, then study it. If you don't know some point of faith, then Read, learn about it, take some time. And if you don't know where to start on either point, then ask someone. It's just that simple. No dumb Christians are allowed. You're just not like, I just believe for no reason. No, that is not acceptable in normal Christianity. Number five, when I say that we must tailor our approach to each unique individual, that means we need to take the time to really get to know and care about those around us. Because that's the only way that real ministry occurs. You, you can be, you know, I, I read a story not too long ago about these guys who pilot the, the unmanned aerial drones in Afghanistan. The, the story started was the guy, he's at work, he's sitting in front of a screen. He can see, you know, where he's flying, all the, 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 the instruments. He's flying along, he sees his target, he drops the bomb, kills the guys. He, can, he circles around to make sure they're dead and he flies and lands the plane. Then he gets up from his desk he walks out the door, he gets in his car, gets on the freeway and drives home. He was living in Los Angeles somewhere. And he was piloting a plane in Afghanistan or Pakistan or wherever it was. It was some Air Force project they were working on. That's fine. Was, was it effective? Yes. That's not the way we minister, though. <laughs> you can't minister from 6,000 miles away, from, from 20,000 feet in the air, dropping bombs at people, hoping the gospel hits them and that something happens in their life. If you're going to compare... Ministry to combat, in that sense, it's much more hand-to-hand. It's much more in your face trying to make sure that you see your opponent, that you know what's going on, that you understand them. We're not waging war on people. We're waging peace. So how do we hit them with the gospel most effectively? I can't do that from 20,000 feet. I have to be in their lives. I have to understand them and know them so I can apply it to them personally. And then in all these things, we just simply trust that God will guide and direct us for the good of those we interact with as well as for his glory. Our mission is to work with all the power that he gives us to make everyone perfect in Jesus Christ. The power behind that mission is prayer. We have to partner with one another through prayer and personal involvement. We also partner with God through both the means and the message of the mission. On a practical, everyday level, our purpose is simply to declare the mysteries of Christ before them clearly so that they can see their need for a Savior and can find the power of God in the gospel. And then today we see the process of the mission requires us to approach all of life wisely, to take advantage of each opportunity, to speak in a way that makes others want to listen, to be able to give good answers to our faith, and to tailor our approach to each unique individual. And through all of this, all that we've seen in four weeks now, God does through us what we cannot do ourselves. Jesus Christ builds his church. 
God draws men to himself through the cross work of Jesus Christ. May we be faithful servants as we serve Christ on this mission. Lord, we tend to overcomplicate what it means to serve you. We think we need to have all these programs and and learn all these these little uh, outlines so that we can go out and give rote answers to people who are as unique as us. And then we wonder why ministry doesn't work. We wonder why we're so ineffective. Well, you haven't called us to anything complicated. You called us to live life, what we were going to do anyway. You called us, though, to do it with wisdom, to do it in a way that recognizes the gospel as being the primary focus of our mission. And so, God, I pray that you will help each and every person in this room know how to do that, that you will help them have the the heart to do that, that you'll give them the strength to do this, that they will make the best use of their opportunities, that they'll be strategic in trying to think through how they can better share Christ with those around them, people at work, people in their family, people in their neighborhood. I pray, Lord, that we will give good answers, answers that, that show that our faith is not just a fairy tale. It is based on truth. And then, Lord, through it all, we ask that you will come in and do what we cannot do, and that is make men like yourself. We have a mission before us that is far too great. It's, it's, it's impossible for us to do it on our own. And yet, this is the one mission that drives the church. We are here to make men and women like Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we love you, and we ask that you will help us to do this in obedience to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.